Uh, turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Nehemiah. Um, <clears throat> we have such a firm habit of just preaching through texts of Scripture, and uh, I know when we get to days like Christmas or Easter, uh, for some there's the question, where are we going to be? Or is, is, is he that stubborn? Um, and yet here we are in Nehemiah. Uh, but I, I would say this morning it's, it's not stubbornness. It is a recognition of the fact that the reality is Christ is on every page of the Bible, and there is a wonderful opportunity to see this morning uh, the power of resurrection in the book of Nehemiah, and to really point our hearts and our hope to Christ. And um, it's one of those moments this morning, I, I feel this a lot when I, when I get up to preach, and certainly this morning, where the message is so much bigger uh, than I am, than this very broken herald, um, and my ability to preach this morning, I, my trust and my hope and my prayer all week, uh, and even this morning, even while we were singing, was that God would just empower his word through his spirit to lighten your load, to point you in hope um, to Christ, to the risen Christ. How fitting it is that we, we went through a whole day of cold rain yesterday, uh, only to wake to a bright sunny morning. And uh, what a wonderful picture, just even from the way God controlled at least our weather. It wasn't that way for everybody on the globe, but our weather, um, we got to delight in that. Well, there's some of you here this morning who haven't been with us in Nehemiah uh, so far, and, and so I think even the sermon this morning will help you. And those of you that have been journeying with us, I think there'll be some reminders here that you find beneficial as well. We've come to this kind of pinnacle moment in the book of Nehemiah. Um, there's this journey for Nehemiah as he is trying to rebuild or lead the city in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And this morning, we, we have these two powerful verses, Nehemiah chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, verses 15 and 16. Um, we'll come back to Nehemiah again this next week and, and see exactly even some of how the, the details play through the rest of this chapter 6. But for us this morning, just verses 15 and 16, and we've, we find this. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. This morning, I just want to help us to remember that it's God's power and not ours that gives real hope. And anytime you're facing something that's overwhelming, you need that reminder. Um, and for some of you, that's just life itself every day for you right now. You face overwhelming circumstances and difficulties and pressures. And you need to be reminded this morning that, that the hope that we have as those who follow Christ is because he's the one in authority. He's the one with the power. He is the one who's in control of all things and not us. Now that is difficult for us because if you're at all like me, you're prone to believe the lie that if I can control it, I can make it better. If, if I can figure it out, if I can fix it, if people would just do what I think they should do, everything would be solved. And at some point in your life, and, and for some of us that happens very, very young, for some as a child even, but for all of us, at some point in life, you're going to face things you can't control. They're out of your control. My children know of a little girl that I went to school with in elementary school, Jennifer. Jennifer was the ultimate control freak. And, and for some reason, our teacher, I think she was a sadist, uh, put Donald, on one, Donald Punt on one side of Jennifer and me on the other side. So we had a row of three desks. Jennifer was the bane of my existence. Jennifer always scored one step above me on, on tests and spelling bee and whatever else. Um, but Jennifer loved to control, and Jennifer loved to always tell me what to do. And, and many of you have known me now for 16 years, and you know how well I respond to just being told what to do. I've told you enough stories from my youth. I'm a rebel to the core. I remember one time I was out for ch chicken pox. I came back, and I opened up my, we had the flip-up desk, opened up my desk, and like all my stuff is shoved to one side in my desk, and I'm like, what is this? She had taken over, commandeered half my desk. Because she had to be in control. She couldn't, she couldn't manage life unless she was in control. 
some of us learn very early that there's things outside of your control. You've health, uh, maybe just a terrible family situation, some kind of suffering enters your life. Usually it's suffering that teaches you this. You just can't control things. And part of what comes with that sense of realizing you can't control it is a loss of hope. A belief that you can't fix it then. You, it can't be made. Nobody can. And one of the things we, we learn as Christians, as followers of Christ, is the hope that we have as believers. <laughs> it's not that somehow there's going to be a sunnier day. It's not that somehow I can control it. It's not even somehow that my circumstances will change. The hope I have is in God's power. And Nehemiah is teaching us that, and ultimately it points even to Resurrection Sunday that we'll see this morning. The pictures up there are really from Henry V. Shakespeare's Henry V. Uh, there's this monumentous moment where the young king is addressing his troops right before the Battle of Agincourt on St. Crispin's Day, October 25th. It's a stirring speech. We know that the real king did address his troops. We don't know what he said, but Shakespeare, the great playwright, authoring what, what I think is his greatest play, just in my opinion, you have this moment where King Henry is trying to encourage his troops and he's speaking to them. And one of the things he tells them is that he foresees a day far in the future when they are now old men. So these young soldiers have become old men and they're sitting at St. Crispin's Day feast. And as they're sitting there, they roll up their sleeves and they bare their chest and they show the scars from the battle of that day. And so the wounds that they're about to receive in battle, King Henry is saying one day will come, become badges of honor for you. Now, that's an amazing sentiment to arouse his troops, and um, certainly in the play, they, they are all honored then to be able to be on this battlefield. But when you know the details of the Battle of Agincourt, you start to realize that that seems a crazy hope. You see, because the, the English had something like 8,000 men there that day. <clears throat> the French had 25,000. Uh, the odds were overwhelmingly in favor of the French. And yet, through a series of strategic moves and opportunistic ways, and, and I won't go into all the details, but the English win. They win, they lose 600 men. The French lose over 6,000 men. It is an overwhelming victory. Uh, the French have to admit defeat. They surrender to the king. King Henry gets what he wants. But what stands out to me is in the face of overwhelming odds, in the face of incredible darkness, that he has this hope that there'll come a day when you can strip your sleeve and say, look at this scar I got on St. Crispin's Day. How do you have the kind of hope that can look forward to the future and say the terrible things you're experiencing now will become amazing markers of God's grace later? That's hope, isn't it? That's the belief that what is happening now will not destroy me, but will be used by God to point to his glory. That's a hope. That's a hope that I think that if we're still prone to control, it's impossible to have. It's a hope that if we still believe that if my circumstances will change, they'll be better, it's impossible to have. That's a hope that is rooted in God's power. It's God's power and not ours that gives us real hope. What's it like to be faced with seemingly overwhelming odds and yet have that kind of confidence? What is it like for you? to try to live with hope in the face of seeming defeat? What is it like to believe there will come a day when you will look back on the scars of your battles today and see them as badges of honor instead of reminders of victimhood? Well, it's Resurrection Sunday. We're going to once again open here in Nehemiah, and my prayer is that it will point our hearts and minds to truths that give us courage, that give us strength, that give us hope. And so how do we understand it from Nehemiah? Well, let's, let's dig right back in. And, and I want to take you on a little bit of a journey with the ways that Nehemiah points us to Jesus before we get to this. And, and I'll be very honest with you. I've included two ways Nehemiah will point us to Christ before we get to resurrection and really here. And I've left out at least two or three others just because there's not enough space or time in the sermon. So I've tried to pick ones that I think will stand out to us the most. First of all, there are promises that give us hope. Promises that give us hope. Some of you um, remember from your own study or that you've been able to be with us that Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, opens 500 miles away from Jerusalem. It opens in the city of Babylon. Nehemiah 
is the cupbearer to the king, King Artaxerxes. And so that means he's in charge of all the meal preparations for the king. Um, and in a, even in a, a foreshadowing of medieval context, he would taste all the food, ensure that there was no poison. And so to be the cupbearer of the king was to have an incredibly trusted position. He certainly would have managed a staff. Uh, he would have been a man, he, we know later he's a man of some means and of some wealth. But Nehemiah lives in Babylon because Babylon has co- conquered Jerusalem and the Jews, and they laid siege to Jerusalem. In the process of laying, laying siege to Jerusalem, it happened in three phases, 605, or 586, 597, 605 B.C. Um, at each one of those, they would lay siege and they would take away captives. In the first captivity, they took away any of the princes and rulers. The second journey of captivity, they took away the merchants, middle class, people that would have had some uh, influential ability. And then the third one, they took anybody else of any value in their minds. So the only people that had been left behind in Israel and around Jerusalem were people that they viewed as lower class, uneducated, um, lacking any ability. And so Nehemiah and his family had been part of the people that had been taken away to Babylon. And so the book of Nehemiah opens and um, Jerusalem's walls are still destroyed. They've rebuilt the temple at this point because of Ezra who went back before. But the city is still laid waste to and it's destroyed. And he receives this report from his own brothers who've gone back to Jerusalem. That now, for over 100 years, the walls lay in ruins. These massive walls of a city. A city's defined by its walls in that day. It's what gave safety. Everyone who lived outside of the walls could come in if there was going to be a problem. They had been able to withstand the Babylonian siege for months and months at a time. So when the Babylonians had finally come, they'd literally dismantled it block by block and burned it. Archaeologists to this day, when they go that deep around Jerusalem, they find stones that were exposed to intense heat and intense fire that still suffer the effects of the fires of the Babylonian siege. And so Nehemiah opens, he's the cupbearer, and he receives this report from his brothers. And the report is the wall is still destroyed. The city still lies in ruins. Some people would have lived in the city, but not many. Some of the rubble had been used to kind of rebuild these ramshackle shelters. But there was no momentum to recover the city of God. Jerusalem was supposed to be the dwelling place of God in the temple. Jerusalem was supposed to be the safety, the capital city of Israel. Why destroy Jerusalem? The Babylonians attacked Jerusalem for the same reason that uh, the terrorists flew into our Twin Towers. They flew into the Twin Towers and they targeted the Pentagon and ultimately the White House, although they didn't get there, because they view these as the military, political, and financial center of our culture. Jerusalem has been attacked because it was seen as the center of the culture. The people itself, this is where they worship their God. And so Nehemiah is just crushed by this. He feels like God's name is defamed and God is mocked and God's people are mocked. What kind of power could they have that this is happening? Do you have moments and seasons like this? Seasons where you feel discouraged and defeated. Seasons where you can't see light at the end of the tunnel. Seasons where you don't know where to turn, what to do. Maybe you don't even know what to pray. Seasons when you, when you feel embarrassed to even claim that you're a Christian because your faith is so weak. Your faith is frail. Your faith feels small. Seasons where it looks and feels like the enemy is winning. Maybe that's even why you're here this morning. Can I just tell you, we'll enter Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah opens his autobiography with these verses, in verses 5 and 6, as he prays. And he says this, I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house, have sinned. Now, Nehemiah doesn't dodge the reality of their situation or their condition. He doesn't dodge why they are where they are. He owns the reality that they are in their place of darkness and defeat because of their own sinful decisions. But he points at something and he looks to something and he looks to the steadfast love of God in verse 5. The covenanting love of God. We hear so much in the Bible about love. John 3.16 that 
even lost folks in our culture, people who know nothing about Christendom, understand the power of John 3.16, that God loved the world so much that he sends his only son. Love leads Jesus to the cross. The fact of the matter is that, that 1 John defines God in one sense by saying God is love. Romans tells us that the death of Christ is to prove his love for us. The fact of the matter is all of history, when you read through the Bible, points to the love of God. I can just say boldly to you here this morning, if you're here this morning, and then I just want to remind you, God loves you. He does, deeply, profoundly, persistently, like no one else ever has and no one else ever will. But how would Nehemiah know that? Nehemiah certainly is living uh, some 500 years before John 3 or Romans is written or 1 John is written. How would he know it? Well, Nehemiah knows the love of God from the stories that he knows. He knows from Adam and Eve who sin and they're in the garden and God has told them, here, eat of every tree except for this one. And Eve buys in. She is deceived by Satan that God is holding something back from her, that, that, that God is afraid of her even, that God doesn't really love her because look at how he is mistreating her. Look at the things he's let happen to her that, that, that she can't have this and and he's trying to protect himself, and Eve buys all those lies. He, she buys the same lies that you and I are prone to buy. God's not for me. He doesn't really love me. He's trying to control me for his own good, but not for me. And so she eats, and, and Adam eats with her. He fails as a leader. He's not deceived. He knows exactly what he's doing. He doesn't love his wife or God in that moment. He only loves himself. He protects himself. They are filled then with utter shame. Shame that they can't cover. Shame that they can't hide in the bushes about. Shame that they can't cover themselves. They try with fig leaves. Their nakedness is exposed. The shame of their sin. We can identify with them. Nehemiah could identify with Adam and Eve. And yet here comes God and he pursues them and he chases them. And he says, where are you? And when he brings them to himself, he kills an animal in front of them. They'd never known death before. He slaughters an animal in front of them, skins the animal, makes clothes, and covers their shame. It is the first foreshadowing of Jesus. I will suffer. There will be death for your shame. Nehemiah understands that exactly the way I hope you're reading that in this moment. That's love. That's love. See, Nehemiah knows the God's love. He knows of God's love towards the infertile couple, Abraham and Sarah, whom he chooses. He says, I'm going to make a great nation. And then he gifts her with a baby. Sarah believes by faith, Hebrews 11 tells us, and and she has a baby, and yes, there is a nation. He knows God's love. He knows God's love toward Joseph, who is hated by his own brothers and yet beloved by God. He knows the love of God towards David, who is chosen and used as this young shepherd boy to feed a giant in the valley. He knows of God's love towards the prophets, towards men like Samuel and towards men like Isaiah and Jeremiah. He knows of God's love. And so Nehemiah is convinced in the season of his greatest darkness and of defeat that even though he's in Babylon and he has wealth and he has position, all he cares about is the name of God. But he knows, I know, I cling to this truth. God loves me. I've learned that sometimes that's a truth that it feels like you soak in, like when you sit in a hot tub and you just relax. Oh, God loves me. Other times it's like that first jump into the pool when they open it in the summer. And it's a shocking reality. God loves me. I've also learned that sometimes it's like working outside all day long and you are exhausted and weary and oh so thirsty. And it's like that first sip of cool water, God loves me. And so it's a truth that we easily rest in at times and other times we have to cling to by faith, don't we? Maybe I'm the only one here this morning, I don't know. But it is a powerful truth and he knows it one person said this, we are born into this world looking for someone to love us. A newborn is born and they start crying and they take that baby and they lay the baby on its mama or its father. So the baby feels safe and secure and it knows 
love. We are born in this world looking for love. And I just want you to know this morning, no matter how you come to us this morning, broken and discouraged, and yet you know you're saved and you know Christ, God loves you. His steadfast love, his covenant-keeping love. Or whether you come to us this morning, you don't know Christ and Maybe even God is beginning the process of awakening you to the reality that you are sinner, you're a sinner and you know you've done things in who you are and you feel weak and broken and you even quite, can anyone love me? I just want to tell you God loves you. And frequently it's in seasons of darkness that he reveals that to us. Nehemiah here, he keys in on one dominant aspect of God's steadfast love. It's his covenant-keeping love. In other words, he makes promises and he keeps them. Nehemiah is remembering the promises of God in this moment specifically for him that God will bring the nation of Israel back, that yes, they're going to go into captivity. They are going to suffer as a result of their own sinfulness as a people. The city is destroyed, but God has already promised there's going to come a day where I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to rebuild the city and I will dwell with you there. And so Nehemiah is thinking people who love when they make promises, they keep them. God loves me. He's made promises. I'm believing by faith that he'll keep them. It's almost like Nehemiah's praying this. God, you loved us and made promises in the past, and you kept those promises to prove your love. I'm asking you to do it again. And so Nehemiah, I don't think, is very different from us. And so maybe he's praying or he is praying about a city that's broken down, walls that are broken down. I think we come in the same broken condition. I think we come either even in our lost state as sinners, and every one of us here has sinned. The Bible's very clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages are what we earn from our sin is that the wages of sin is death. We deserve judgment. That is a broken, dark, horrible place. And so to have someone shouting to us, they love us, seems overwhelming and we want to believe we want to we want to believe that truth but it seems too powerful too profound for us or maybe you come this morning you're a christian you're in a broken place and you you found your faith weak and faltering and shaky and you're saying i know he loves me i believe he loves me i believe he loves me because the bible says so but if you're really honest you don't feel it you cling to it you're desperate for it and so your prayer would be not dissimilar from Nehemiah. God, you've made promises and kept them in the past to show your life. Father, you've made promises, has he? Well, Nehemiah is actually pointing us ahead to Jesus. He's just a shadow. You know, it's interesting, um, and I'd encourage you even to think about this. Our culture, the world, it's not just our westernized culture, but the world is fascinated with the same themes that you see in the Bible. It's like God wove them into the DNA of humanity. Redemption. Can you think of any stories where somebody very, very bad is slowly or even suddenly transformed into a much better person? Wow. Um, that sounds an awful lot like Les Mis with Jean Valjean. Some of you are like, thanks, Steve. I'm all up on my French 1800s literature. Um, nerd. Um, Okay, some of them, another one I love, Loki from the Marvel series. You take somebody that's supposedly really, really bad and you see this transforming work in them. They're redemptive themes. You can find it in almost every movie series, literature series. You have these redemptive themes. Take somebody bad and they slowly become good. Or, or how about this theme? Let's think of this. Have you ever heard of any stories where someone is either an orphan or raised in such a setting where their real parentage isn't fully revealed, but they have the power in them to help everybody else that needs to be helped? Oh, I don't know. Everything from Star Wars with Luke to Harry Potter. Our world is enraptured with these kinds of themes, redemptive themes, salvific themes, the, the themes of Wicked people being made good. We want, we, want, we want villains to become heroes. We want people that have nothing to become powerful. We even get enraptured with stories like a Cinderella, which has an amazing story of someone raised from ashes, literally, to majesty. This is, like, this is our, it resonates. Like, and I'm not even saying all these people do it intentionally, but it resonates. Our world wants to hear these stories, 
Well, the Bible is filled with shadows of them. And Nehemiah is one of them. And the most powerful ones, I think, are obviously in Scripture. And so Nehemiah is a shadow, but Jesus is the fulfillment. Nehemiah is not just a story about rebuilding a city and a promise-keeping, loving God. He points our hearts forward to Jesus. When Paul is writing to the Romans, he comes to the end of his letter, and he wants to tell us, why did Jesus come? And he gives us these verses. Now, we, we could talk all kinds of reasons why did Jesus come. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. Jesus came to do the will of his Father. But listen just specifically this morning how, how Paul says it in the book of Romans. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to his patriarchs. What is he saying? He's saying Jesus came so that when God makes promises to show that he keeps them. That's exactly what Nehemiah was praying, isn't it? The covenant-keeping, steadfast love of God. And specifically in Romans, this is really applicable for us this morning, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now, it very well may be that you're here this morning, that you're Jewish by heritage. God bless you. Great to have you. But, but I'm going to presume that most of us are Gentiles this morning. And so specifically, as he's writing to the church in Rome that is filled with Gentiles, it does have a small group of Jews there, but it's primarily Gentiles. He's coming to these promises. There were promises given, verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Do you know what he's quoting there? He's quoting from 2 Samuel. He's quoting from the time of the prophets before the kings. And then as the kings came, there's this promise. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. He's quoting from Deuteronomy, the law. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people extol him. He's quoting from the Psalms. Now, (laughs) Paul's like a genius, right? He learned at the feet of a guy named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was called the light of the law. That's how bright he was, how brilliant he was. Gamaliel was the guy who discipled Paul in understanding the law. So Paul knew the word. He knew the Old Testament long before he ever became saved, before when he was still Saul. And so when Paul wants to remind the church in Rome of God's promises, he pulls from the time of the kings, he pulls from the law, he pulls from the prophets, and then he goes to Isaiah. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who rises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Prophets, poetic books, psalms, the kings, the law, Paul is telling them that God made these promises throughout all of history. And specifically the promise was this. You don't have to be from Abraham to be part of my covenant people. Uh, When I was a child, um, growing up in church, children's church, if teachers wanted to really exhaust you, they sang Father Abraham. Uh, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. And then they do this weird um, hokey-pokey-esque thing. I will not perform this dance for you this morning. This is videoed, and then people can screenshot that and embarrass me for the rest of my life. And that's, I got enough things going on, right? But you swing your right arm, and you sing the same song, and then your left arm, and you can guess where this is going. Then your head, then your right left foot, then your left foot, then spin around. This is purely to wear the candy that the Sunday school teachers gave kids out of them in children's church. That's, that's all it is. But it's keen on this truth that you don't have to be Jewish to be one of God's people. But he made promises all along the way that there's going to come one who will bring you in. You ever felt like an outsider? You read the Old Testament and it's, it's Israel this, Israel that, Israel the other, Israel, Israel, Israel. And, and at some point you might think, but, but I'm not of Israel, so what am I? When I was a child, we moved when I was halfway through the first grade year. I, so I show up, all these kids had done pre-K, kindergarten, first grade, and I felt like an outsider. I think I sensed it more than it was a reality, but I felt like I didn't belong. You ever feel like you don't belong? You know, it's ironic. Some of you are here at church, and if there's ever a place where you should feel a sense of belonging, it should be in the life of the church. But some of you are here this morning, you feel like you don't belong. It could be all kinds of reasons. It could be sin in your life. 
I think one of the horrible lies of Satan is that you are too sinful for church or for God. What a lie. What a lie. It could be because things that have been done to you, things that you have experienced. It could be because of doubts or fears that you have. It, it could be because you're new. It could be because you've never lived in this area. It could be because you're straight. I, I don't know. But it is not uncommon for people, and it's, I asked this question several weeks ago in a sermon, how many of you at times have felt like you don't belong here? And like literally like 90% of the people raised their hands. It could be marital status. It could be child status. It could, it could be age. It could be economic. It could be academic. It could be all kinds of things. Well, one of the things that when you read the Bible is you could be tempted to look at it and say, I don't belong. One of the wonderful truths of God building a multi-ethnic church, multi-racial, is to demonstrate that your belonging has nothing to do with how you're born. It has to do with what Jesus has done. And so it's a glorious reality. Uh, there's a common phrase. I'll just step right in it. I mean, if you're visiting this morning, this is just the way I roll. Um, you ever heard the phrase, I don't see race? Right? That's supposed to demonstrate that I'm not a racist. I just want you to know I see race, and I want to see race because Jesus sees race. And he made races so he can delight in it. Do you know how to know that? Because when we get to heaven, we're not one race. We're one people. But he wants to delight in the panoply, the, the glorious technicolor of humanity that he has made. Because he says he redeems people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We don't get to glory in it if it becomes monochromatic. All of this is to demonstrate it's a reflection of God. And so while there is massive diversity, even in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, massive diversity, it's one God in three persons, but yet the Holy Spirit functionally does different work than the Father, who functionally does different work than the Son. So even in your salvation, the Father has chosen, the Son has paid the price, and the Holy Spirit applies it to you, but there's obvious unity and diversity, and so he also intends it in the church. And what Paul is saying is God has made promises through all of history that part of that is you don't get to be in or out based on who you were when you were born, but based on what Jesus has done in you. I promise you that is what he's saying. And I love you, and because I love you, I fulfill what I promise to you. Why is Jesus born as a baby? Why he lived, taught, healed, delivered, and died to fulfill promises so that we might have hope. Now, how do God's promises and his love and fulfilling his promises give you and I hope? Hope because it's out of his love that he keeps those promises. Hope because we can't see the rebuilding of our souls. Nehemiah couldn't see in that moment the rebuilding of the walls. He just was believing. He's hoping for it. And so we hope. We come this morning broken needy, maybe feeling ostracized and outside, not worthy, and yet we have hope because he's promised to bring you in. If you come this morning and you don't know him, you've never turned from your sin and trusted him, he says, come to me, I promise you, I will never, ever cast you out. We have hope. Because we can't see the rebuilding of our souls, but he can. We have hope because there's no light at the end of our tunnel. <laughs> but we serve the one that when it was dark, he said, let there be light. And there was light. We have hope because the same God who promised all of this has promised to love you, to care for you, to be with you and never leave you or forsake you, to prepare a place for you and to come back for you. It is God's power and not ours that gives us real hope. And so Nehemiah is, pro is pointing us to Jesus. But Nehemiah doesn't just do it there. He does it later in chapter 1 by pointing us to an impossible work, an impossible work. Some jobs are just overwhelming, just completely overwhelming. Bringing home a baby from the hospital is overwhelming. Second and third child, um, we were on mission to get out of the hospital, get us out of this place, right? First child, I was a little scared to leave the nurses behind. I don't know if she was, but I was a little scared, right? A little nervous. By the time you get to two and three, you feel like your old hand, you got this. Especially if you have an easy first baby. Then, like, world wrecks, and you realize you don't know what you're doing anyway. 
The first one, it's like, you know, second and third, when's checkout time? Print the papers, get me out of here. First one, well, checkout time's 11. Can we get a late checkout? You're scared. It's an overwhelming job. Maybe just going to a new job, it's overwhelming trying to learn it. One of my first jobs was Little Caesars making the pizza dough. I didn't know how, how testy dough was about temperature of water. I didn't know. It was like mixed water. Now, it was mixed water. I don't remember what the temperature was. We're going back 30 years now. But it was like a certain temperature. I just like went to the tap, got the water, dumped it in. This bread comes out flat. I mean, it's, you know, Little, Little Caesars is not like top-tier pizza anyhow. But, but like I'm killing it. I'm ruining it. I didn't know what I was doing. Manager was patient with me, and she's teaching me, and she's trying to figure out what I'm doing wrong. And it was overwhelming, all the little detailed steps. So sometimes just new job, new baby, starting a new school year. Um, all your teachers, they help you out. They give you all these syllabus, syllabi, and you're like, oh, man, I got this paper and this much reading and this to write and this to write, and it just feels overwhelming to you. Beginning a new workout regimen. What am I going to do? A new diet. Um, um, starting to, my son just built this massive Lego uh, space shuttle. Just start, anything. Like you ever had an overwhelming kind of job, an impossible kind of job? Well, Nehemiah is coming to rebuild, but it's not just the city he wants to rebuild. He wants to rebuild the culture. And that's just, that's impossible, right? He says it this way, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That's, what we've ha that's what's happened to us is what he's saying. We're in Babylon because of this. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. And Nehemiah is not just interested in rebuilding the city walls. He wants to rebuild a culture. He wants a transformation of the inhabitants, not just a place for people to live. A holy culture. A pure culture that could only happen it was if it, the city is filled with people who believe, who love God, and who obey him. A worshiping culture. Prior to them going into captivity, they had just completely defamed the temple. Uh, prophet Ezekiel gives has a vision and he communicates how destroyed the temple complex was. They had actually set up in the, when he went into the main courtyard of Solomon's temple, they had set up these um, sexualized images. They had broken down the barriers of the courtyards where various people could go. Only the priests were supposed to go here. Only men were supposed to go here. Women could go here. Gentiles could go. And they had just broken all the barriers down. People were inside the temple complex and the, where it was clothed or covered in sheets of gold. They had actually painted over the sheets of gold. All of these idols and images and were worshiping in an occultic way. Um, the women of, of Jerusalem... It says when they were under siege, we were in the temple and they were praying to Tammuz. And Tammuz was this fertility goddess that the pagans worshipped. And so God's temple had just been filled with all this pagan and occultic imagery, uh, idols that people sacrificed their own children to. They turned the house of God literally into a just den of devils. And Nehemiah is hoping for a day that with the rebuilt temple under Zerubbabel and Ezra, that it would be filled with a holy people, the kind of people that would never go back to that. Listen, building walls isn't easy. 40 foot high, 8 foot thick, 2 and a half miles of walls is never going to be easy. Changing people's hearts? That's impossible. It's an impossible work. He wants an obedient culture so in love with God that they joyfully serve him faithfully. Why do we obey God? Um, at the core, at the core, Jesus makes it very clear, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You can see it in 1 John chapter 2 and 1 John chapter 4. Throughout the Gospels and what Jesus says, people who follow Jesus obey him because they love him. I want him to be honored. I want him to be glorified. Nehemiah wants a city filled with people who love God, and so they obey God. What, what if you were looking for a job? What if you were, um, 
you know, online, you're, you're looking at ZipRecruiter and you're trying to find a job and a job popped up for you. And, and the job, um, you're just trying to look for something that would work and take care of you. And the job says it requires more than 135 hours a week. It's going to require you to juggle multiple tasks. You're not going to get any breaks. And in fact, during holidays, you're probably going to actually have to work more. Um, you're going to be working directly with some associates, um, clients of the company. And, and anytime you eat, you, you can eat, but you can only eat after they eat. You're going to have to structure your menu around them. No vacation, no holidays, and it pays nothing. Well, millions of people already have that job. They're called moms. And I think the reality is when we lay out some jobs and we see the details, we're like, never. No way. When we live in the reality of what a job really asks us to do, it can be daunting. As daunting as the task of rebuilding walls is for Nehemiah, rebuilding a nation is ridiculously difficult. Do you know what feels impossible? Just impossible. For some of you here this morning, it feels impossible that you would ever feel safe and secure. It feels impossible that you would ever Feel, feel accepted. It feels impossible that you would ever be totally whole. Who you are without worrying about people rejecting you. That feels impossible to you. It feels impossible to you that you could ever be a part of people, a group of people, have friends, a community, that they're just happy you're there, thrilled you're there. They make you one of their own and they never want you to leave. It feels impossible that you would ever be valued for both your brokenness and your strengths. Realizing that for most of us, it's our brokenness that produces our strengths. It feels impossible that you could just ever be encouraged in the ways that you're growing, supported in your failures, encouraged in your weaknesses. It feels impossible to you that that could exist. It feels, the work, it feels impossible for you that you could ever see progress in your walk in Christ. It feels impossible to you that you could see broken things made whole again. It feels impossible to you that you could see sin destroyed. Impossible work. Nehemiah has this unbelievable hope that God will do impossible things because God's promised impossible things. And in this, Nehemiah is once again pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate people builder. And he says this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jesus has come to do the work that's impossible work. Now, <clears throat> Peter does something at the end of this, verse 10, that I think it's easy for us to forget, or, or many people don't know. There comes this moment in Old Testament where there's a prophet and God tells him to marry this woman. And he tells him at the outset, she's going to be unfaithful to you. And she is. And, and as this woman goes out, she actually prostitutes herself. And she gets pregnant by a man other than her husband. She, she comes back home during her pregnancy, delivers the baby, and then leaves again. And does it a second time. And the prophet names these children, not my people and no mercy. But he then raises them like they are his. He has them in their home and they're not his children. And they would be a daily in your face reminder of the unfaithfulness. And yet he loves them 
and cares for them. She goes out doing whatever she wants to do and he holds them and he diapers them and he would have found a nursemaid for them and he cares for them and he loves them. And what Peter's telling us is that was another shadow of you and me. And of his love because we were not in. We were outside and he's brought us in. We were orphans and he adopted us. We had no love and he set his love upon us. We didn't deserve mercy and he gave us mercy. Jesus came to build a people. He came to build a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation because they're his people. He came to unite a people around one thing and one banner and one person and it's him and it's his kingdom and it's his banner. He came to be both king over a kingdom that he makes. It's an impossible thing. A people bound together because all of us have these things in common. Every one of us in this room were orphans that are now adopted if you've come to know Christ. I just want you to know that in your darkness, in the walls broken down, in your place of sinfulness, if you're here with us this morning and you haven't turned to Christ for salvation, in your darkness and in your aloneness and in your hopelessness, Christ is yet calling to you, come to me. Believe in me, turn from your sin and follow me and I will bring you in. I will love you. And if your heart would be prone to say, but will he really? He said, you know what? Then let me prove it to you while you're still in your darkness. I'll die for your sin. I'll pay the price for what your sin has earned. Come to me. I will make you a new people. He does the impossible work. We are bound together because all of us were under judgment and now we are free. Jesus lived rejected by his own family so that you and I can be accepted. Jesus was killed outside of the city so that you and I can always be safe inside his city. Jesus entered the very darkness of death so that you and I can walk in the light. It's God's power and not ours that gives us hope. Now all of that is intended then to bring us to chapter 6. In chapter 1, there is incredible hope because it's focused on the person and promises of God. There's profound hope because there's an impossible work. I'm encouraged, though, because God is the God of the impossible. There's an awareness that unless God does the work, it's a fruitless work. You see, you can come to church all you want. You can give money. You can serve people in nonprofit organizations. You can be a wonderful person. You can do all the good deeds you can try to do. You can try to be moral. You can try to follow the law. You can't do the impossible work of making your dead soul live. But he can. And so God has made all these promises that Nehemiah in chapter 1 is clinging to. He's believing them. But he is trying and he's in the middle of something that's hard to see. And so he comes then to chapter 6. And it's 52 days later after the start of the job. And I want to read it to you again. So the wall was finished. On the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. This work has been God's work. This work has been astounding work. This work has been astonishing work. This is a good work. Now, you might be here and you haven't journeyed with us, and maybe you haven't, you've forgotten this point, and she might be thinking, well, how good can the wall be? Uh, a 40-foot high, two and a half miles, eight of wall, eight feet thick. How good could it be if they built it in 52 days? They built on the same foundation the walls that stood when Jesus rode through them. To this day, the walls that they build in Jerusalem are built on these. That's how good they were. In other words, that, now that's uncommon. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, that would be like throwing a stack of two-by-fours at me with a hammer and nails and say, build a house in, four, in three days. Like, it ain't happening. It's almost like when Jesus says, if you tear down something, I can rebuild it. That which the enemy has destroyed, I can make whole. These are good walls. These are strong walls. These are God's walls. This work has been astonishing not just to the people that believe, but to the enemies of God. This work is obviously miraculous and powerful. God has raised living stones out of the death. In fact, uh, one of the enemies of God actually made the comment, uh, he thought he was being all poetic. <laughs> 
Can God make tombstones live? Can he make these dead stones alive? Well, I ask you this morning, can he make dead things live? Oh, yes, he can. And oh, yes, he has. The enemies of God make this a resurrection argument, not Nehemiah. Nehemiah is focused on the love, the patience of God, the power of God. The enemies say, you can't make dead things live. Satan knew, <laughs> this is amazing, the enemies of God, he knew what this was pointing to. And so he wanted to sow the seeds of doubt in God's people that you focus on the impossibility of the work rather than the one who can do the work. You focus on the job being overwhelming rather than the one who really has the power to do the job. You focus on the death of the stones rather than on the power of God. That's what he wants. All of this is intended to point us forward to see the risen Christ. When Jesus dies, there is nothing more in doubt than the love and promises of God. It makes the destruction of Jerusalem pale in comparison. It makes the reconstruction of a new city and a new people feel like a faint pipe dream. But then there's Sunday morning resurrection day. After his resurrection, Jesus made 12 more recorded appearances before his ascension. With the resurrection of Jesus, there was also the resurrection of some 500 other people. Some who are still alive when Paul's writing his letter to the Corinthians a few decades later. If you were a young person in Nehemiah's day, Working on the wall. Just imagine that. You're there, um, maybe you're a teenager or a child, and you're helping your mom and your dad. Women and men both are out there building the walls in, in some places. And, and you're, you're, you're slinging mortar, and your dad's teaching you, and um, you're carrying rocks. I can think of all kinds of jobs I did with my dad, uh, from roofing to we built a chimney at our house to replacing the air conditioner at our home to more car jobs than I can imagine. I think guys who know cars are afflicted with terrible cars. Right, man, Gary? It's like we can't get past it, right? So that's just what happens to us. So, so all these jobs with my dad. I mean, think of, so imagine if you're one of these little kids in Jerusalem and you're out here and, it's, and at first you're excited about it. This is so much fun. I don't have to go to school. I can do work. This is cool. And you, by the end of day one, you've got some blisters on your hands and this isn't fun anymore. And you're like, how's this ever going to happen? And you think from day one, and then 52 days later, you saw these walls put up and it's just amazing. And so now fast forward and you're a dad or a mom or a grandma or grandpa. And you've got your child and the child is, you're trying to disciple them, maybe do a family worship time, and they are doubting God. And you've built your home safe enough that it's okay for your children to explore their struggles and their fears and their doubts. What would you do? But how can God do it? And can I trust him? And how do I believe? And you realize they've only ever lived in a city with the walls built. I'll tell you what you do. I'll tell you. You say, come with me. And you go to the wall. And you find a place that has a ladder. And the child's terrified because they realize this is a four-story wall. And you say, we're going to climb the wall today. Pack to picnic lunch. We're climbing the ladder. We're climbing the stairs. We're going to climb the wall. And they look at you with big eyes and they're terrified. And you say, but we're climbing the wall. And so you climb the wall. And maybe you pick the south side that overlooked the terraced hills where so much of the rubble had fallen down. Where some of it still exists to this day, so we know it existed in Nehemiah's day. We know it exists now in your day. And you take that child to the wall, and you spend all day, and you climb the wall. And when you got to the top of the wall, you would look at this little child, and you'd say, reach down and put your hand on the wall. Feel these stones. Touch them. And you'd say, this wall was raised by God himself in 52 days. And I saw him do it. There is a God who lives and who's powerful. That's what you'd do. You would, you would do what some of you do. You would tell them stories of God's faithfulness to you. You would give them demonstrations of God's faithfulness. You would talk about things from the Bible, from the parting of the Red Sea to the healing of the blind to the cleansing of the lepers. Or maybe you tell them the stories like I tell of my youngest brother that the leading pediatric neonatologist in the nation, Johns Hopkins, told my parents, there's nothing we can do. Prepare yourselves. He's not going to make it. And we prayed 
and we prayed and we called others to pray. And my brother is married and lives in Louisville and has two sons of his own because God did it. That's what you do. And so Jesus has raised, and eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And so if you were in Nehemiah's day, you would put your hand on the wall, and he would say, Feel the wall that God has raised from the dead. And if you were in Jesus' day, Jesus said literally, Thomas, put your hand in my side and feel where they pierced me. Put your hand in my hands and touch the resurrection power of God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking in this moment. You are thinking, Steve, I wish that could be for me. I wish I had hands to touch and a side to touch just to be reminded, to be tactily reminded, physically reminded, he rose from the dead, and so the same power that's in him is the power that's at work in my life. But then Jesus says this, if you believe because you have seen me, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And do you know what that is? That's a promise for you and I 2,000 years later on Resurrection Sunday. Blessed, Macarius, happily and fully satisfied in God is what that means. There is a unique and happy satisfaction in God to believe, not based on some physical evidence, but because of the work of the Spirit. Because I want you to know something. You and I don't believe in Christ because of the power of our intellect. The world is full with far smarter people who don't believe. You and I don't believe because we've been raised in a Christian culture. There are millions who have been raised in a Christian culture who don't believe. You and I would not necessarily believe if we saw Jesus because there were thousands upon thousands who saw him resurrected and yet did not believe. You and I believe because of the work of his spirit in us. He says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so it is a miraculous spirit work in us that somehow stirs within us and he gives us faith. It's a gift and we believe. And we are happy and fully satisfied in him because we believe. God has determined that there is a better way to strengthen the faith of the doubting and to proclaim salvation to the lost. There's a better way than having Jesus here physically in front of us to see and touch his scars. What is that way? How, what is the better way? Look around. Seriously, look around. Because you see around you the better way. Because what you see is people that have been transformed by Jesus. You have a pastor who at 14 stood with a butterfly knife ready to gut a kid in the 8th grade. You think I'm here because of some inherent goodness? We have people here who would be in prison, who would be drug addicts, drunkards, we have people here who would just be all full of their own goodness and think that they're better than everybody else. But Jesus has come into their life. And the resurrected power of Christ has transformed them. And they believe. The better way is this. That he has chosen to group together changing, transformed people by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's making a people who love God and others. He's making a people who find their wholeness in Christ. He's knitting together a holy nation of people who deal kindly with the faults, failings, and fears of one another. He's building a people who have hope because God makes walls out of tombstones, life from death, and he will finish the good work he has begun. Come and see my scars. See how God is healing me in Christ, accepting me in Christ, giving me brothers and sisters in Christ, courage for days ahead in Christ, and a full and happy heart on Resurrection Day. Come and see the work that Jesus does. That's what Easter is all about. Look at Christ and see what he does and then show his power. Show his power to your friends and your family, those who believe and certainly to those who were lost. Show them the power of Christ to overcome evil, darkness, and death. 
for any and everyone who will come to him. The nations will be stunned. Your lost friends will be shocked. What is this change in you? It's Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you are lost, I hope for you as well that you will be stunned by how even 500 years before Jesus ever walked the earth, he was weaving into history the power of resurrection. And I call to you to come to him and to know true change, true transformation, true rescue that's only from God's power and not ours. I call to us, believer and lost person alike, to come to the wall-building, life-rescuing, life-from-death-loving God. Know him and be made whole in him through the risen Christ. Because at the end of the day, no matter how dark it is, it's God's power and not ours that gives us real hope.